Well, thank you, Vincent and worship team, for leading us in those excellent songs of worship, getting us to think about the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is good to be back with you guys. I know that I've been here the last couple Sundays, but I feel like I've been away from you guys for a long time just because I've been away at camp. And uh, so it's good to have a full week back and uh, to be with all of you here this Sunday morning. Um, so initially, when I was thinking about what I should be preaching on this Sunday, I was thinking that I, I could probably continue on in the book of Acts or do something else. And what I really wanted to show you, what I really wanted to bring to you this morning was what God was teaching me. And uh, just one of the more resounding themes that has been on my mind uh, this entire summer. Uh, so for those of you in middle school and high school who have heard a form of this morning's sermon today, I apologize, but I kind of don't because it is, uh, it is my joy to preach the same things to you again. Um, but with that, let's turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. The book of Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 7 to 16 this morning, but we're going to start from verse 2 for context. Okay, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. The Apostle Paul writes this, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, although I might myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained." Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your loving kindness towards us and how you, day by day, show us your grace and show us your mercy. As we come to this text this morning, we pray that, Lord, you would show us more of Christ, that you would show us more of yourself, and that you would help us to love you more, to learn how to live life that glorifies you and so, Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself, that you would make yourself mighty in our eyes, and that you would just show how lovely you are. We're grateful 
to you for your word and for how it reveals to us just your great worth. Honor yourself, we pray. In your son's name, amen. When Christians are asked to explain the gospel to others, whether in actuality or in scenarios, we will always explain that we are sinners, that Jesus is God's son who died on the cross and rose again in three days, and that when we pray and when we believe in him, we will have our sins forgiven. That is all true. But what happens after we pray? What some of us call the sinner's prayer. Well, we know that there is an expectation that our lives will demonstrate that the gospel has had an impact on our lives through the production of the fruit of the Spirit, as described in Galatians 5, to 23. Now, while it may take some time to manifest these different aspects of fruit in our lives, just as it takes a little while for fruit to grow on trees, genuine believers in Jesus Christ always produce fruit. And this production of fruit is not a work that produces salvation, as some may contest, but it is the evidence. It is the proof of a life that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we're honest, the next question that we ought to be asking in regards to the Christian life is, what next? After I pray the prayer, and I'm sure that I have genuinely been saved, how does the gospel affect my life? Does it even have any other effects on my life, or does my life pretty much just go on except for I go to church and I read my Bible? And as you would expect, the answer to that is yes, the gospel continues to have effects on our lives outside of just going to church and reading our Bibles. But what does that life look like? What does that life look like? Well, this morning, we're going to examine how the gospel impacts our impacts real life through two drastic changes. Okay, we're going to examine how the gospel impacts real life through two drastic changes. And the first drastic change the gospel has on our lives is value reprioritization. Value reprioritization. Now, as we read prior to verse 7... Paul warns the Philippians of the fake Christians who are trying to persuade them in, manners, in matters regarding the Christian life with their credentials. And Paul, he engages in a little bit of foolishness with them as he hears the credentials of the false, teacher, false teachers, and he basically says to them, oh, you want to compare resumes. You want to compare accomplishments. Let's go. And as Paul lists his accomplishments, it becomes clear that who he is and what he has done is far more significant than any of the other credentials and accomplishments that the false teachers have ever accomplished. He was actually born into the nation of Israel. He was circumcised the eighth day, which meant that his family followed the law. He, he was born into the tribe of Benjamin, and that tribe was the first tribe, or it was the tribe where the first king of Israel came from, so, and Saul was that king. He had the best education, he was, the member, he was a member of the religious elite, and he even made it a point to try and exterminate what he believed at the time was to be a threat to faith in Yahweh. All that Paul inherited and accomplished in his life were far more than any other religious leader could ever hope to boast in. And so if anyone wanted to play the boasting game, Paul had him beat. But look what he says in verse 7. 
He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul looks at everything that he has, everything that he's inherited, everything that would, would define his worth by Hebrew religious standards. And he says that these things which were once great gain to him, these things that other people would look at and say, wow, you have it all, all those things he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This language of gain and count, these are accounting terms. Paul has considered the worth of his social and religious assets. And while others would have considered them as great gains, he considered them as negative, as loss for the sake of Christ. Can you imagine that? Put yourself in his sandals. Could you fathom taking everything that you ever worked for Everything that defines you, and you simply count it as lost. You throw it all away for the sake of knowing Christ. All of the volunteer hours that you ever put in to help the community, all of the studying that you've ever done to get your high GPA, all of the extracurriculars that you so that you can look good on your college all of the late nights at the office, all of the time that you've put in, everything that defines you and gives you a sense of self-worth, throw that all out of the window for the sake of Christ. And yet, it doesn't seem to stop there. As Paul continues in verse 8, he says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Not only does Paul count his social and religious status and accomplishments as loss for the sake of Christ, he also counts all things, right? Not just, the, not just the things he finds worth in, but all things are a loss compared to knowing Christ, which means that anything that he could have ever found joy in, anything that he could have found pride in, identity in, all of those things he considers as loss in the ledger, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. The phrase that Paul uses to speak on Christ's surpassing value can literally be translated in view of the surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that word used for knowledge is a familiar word which speaks to a personal or experiential knowledge of something. And for example, you and I, have a general idea of who celebrities are in this culture. We, we might even know a little bit of their personalities because of social media. But we don't really know the real person. For example, I can tell you a lot about Buster Posey. If he was sitting here in the crowd, I'd be able to pick him out. I could tell you because of what I've heard on Giants broadcast that Buster Posey loves children. And he loves giving his time and his money to good causes. But I don't actually know Buster Posey, do I? I don't. I don't have a firsthand experience or knowledge of him. I just have a conceptual idea of who he is because I love the giants. Instead of having a conceptual idea of who Christ is, Paul says, I have firsthand knowledge of Christ. Now, this should cause you to pause and think, where did Paul receive this personal knowledge of Jesus? Because he wasn't, orig he wasn't an original apostle. He wasn't walking with Christ with the 12. 
he received this knowledge on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, where he encountered Jesus, who had plans to save him. In Acts 9, 15 to 16, after Jesus appears to Saul and grabs his heart, Jesus tells Ananias to minister to Paul and says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus chose to save Paul in eternity past so that Paul would be a unique witness of Christ. And the reason why Paul's conversion was so dramatic was so that Paul would be driven to continue to bear witness to the saving power of Jesus' name no matter what he faced. In 2 Corinthians 11.24-26, Paul details how he was brought to the brink of death in service to Christ at least 12 times, if not more. And after getting savaged by the people that he was supposed to minister to, that he was supposed to share the gospel to, you would expect that Paul would just give up. And after getting beaten the 12th time, dragging himself up and getting back up, you would think Paul was just like, you know what, I'm done. How many times do I have to share this gospel before someone will actually repent? Why do I have to live my life and be in constant threat of losing it when no one wants to listen? I should just give up and just preserve my own life. You would expect that he would say that, but he does not do that. He presses on and he continues to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. In one incident, Paul was stoned and then left for dead. What does he do after that? He doesn't just lie there. He gets up and he goes back into the city and he continues to preach the gospel. You and I, if we had large rocks thrown at our heads and, were, and, and get beat down by those rocks, we would not get back up and say, oh, you know what? Let's do that again. Right? That's, that's what we would say is insanity. But what Paul does is he gets back up, dusts himself off, goes into the city, and continues to preach the gospel. Why? Because in Acts 9, when he gets saved... Paul comes face to face with the glorified Jesus, and he lives. He receives a glimpse of what awaits him were he to go to heaven to be with God, and what he saw there enraptures his mind so that he completely commits to sharing the gospel with whomever he comes across so that they too would know the supreme value of Jesus Christ. Paul knows firsthand how glorious it will be to see Christ face to face, which is why he says, going back to Philippians 3.8, that everything in life, all things in life, are lost in view of knowing Christ. He's willing to give it all up, to throw it all away to know Christ, even though he suffered the loss of all things for Christ, just as Jesus said he would in Acts 9. What we see here is the parable of the treasure in the field come to life. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure that is hidden in a field, which a man found. And then he hid it back in the field again. He sold everything that he had, and he went and he bought that land so that that treasure could be rightfully his. Paul sees the treasure that awaits him in the kingdom of heaven. 
namely Christ himself. And he is willing to sell it all, to lose it all, all for the sake of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ and knowing his great saving power reprioritized all of Paul's values. It made everything that Paul once held dear in life pale in comparison so that there is no greater thing than knowing Christ. And so he says that all these things that were once gained, he counts or considers them but rubbish so that he may gain Christ. You know, that word rubbish, it can also be translated as dung or excrement. And that helps us understand how much Paul now values knowing Christ. Everything that used to define him. Everything that used to give him a sense of self-worth. Everything that the world desires to pursue and hold dear is worth nothing more than something that deserves to be buried, burned, or nowadays flushed down the toilet. All that, nothing compared to gaining Christ. But having a personal saving knowledge of Christ is not the only benefit, the only value-changing effect that comes from being saved. Verse 9 says this, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. All things are lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Not just so that Paul can gain Christ, but also so that Paul may be found in him. Put in another way, Christ's surpassing value results in Paul receiving his righteousness from Christ. Paul is saying it is far better to have a righteousness that has been given to me as a gift by God on the basis of faith than it is for me to have a righteousness that I have to earn on my own by obeying the law. And remember where Paul came from before he got saved. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, one of the top religious leaders at that time. Paul knew what it would have looked like. He, know, he knew what it would have felt like to try and achieve a righteousness on his own as he tried to observe all 613 laws that Moses and the other religious leaders placed before them. 613 laws. We can barely keep 20. Sometimes five for some of us. He usually had to try and keep 613 laws to be righteous before God. And so this is freedom. Many of you know what it's like to try and obtain a righteousness derived on your own as well. Because you grew up in legalistic teaching. Which taught you that it was sin to go to the movies. It was sin to listen to secular music. It's sin to wear shorts to church. It's sin to play guitar. And it's sin to play the drums so on and so forth. Now, it is certainly wise for us to avoid some of these things for the sake of our own purity and for our testimony, but your righteousness, your legal standing before God has never, ever been determined, has never been earned through your belief in Christ, your repentance, plus your ability to follow the rules. Your righteousness your standing before God, your justification has always, always been a result of God's gracious gift of faith to you so that you can have his grace. It's not because of your work. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. And so when Paul says, 
That the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus is good because it allows for him to gain Christ and to be found in him, having his righteousness because of God's gracious action. Paul, he understands the sweetness of that righteousness that has been given to him by God because it's not based on his own merit. It's not based on his own work, but it's all by God's kind and loving gift of faith to him. It's a righteousness that does not need to constantly be earned or maintained through extra biblical standards, but a sweet righteousness that is given as the free gift of God to all who will believe. No longer will we seek affirmation or self-worth or justification from others or our accomplishments, but we will rest with the full understanding that God himself is the one who justifies us and makes us righteous. Verse 10 to 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This righteousness allows for Paul to know Christ, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings so that Paul may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, what does that mean? What is Paul striving towards as a result of God's gracious gift of righteousness through faith in Christ? Simply put, is glorification. He's looking forward to the resurrection. He's looking forward to that day when all will be made right. When he will be made completely like Christ. Not having any single part of his life that is not conformed to God's righteous standards anymore. Paul eagerly anticipates, he eagerly strives for the day when sin is but a distant memory and he can stand face to face with Christ again and stay there because he's not only legally right before God, but he's finally positionally right before God, having become completely like Christ. There will no longer be any hindrances to our relationship with God in that day. We will finally be who God made us to be in full. Full joy will be ours because we will be with God himself. So you see, the gospel, it drastically changes our lives by reprioritizing our values. If Christ truly is everything to us, If the gospel has truly affected us, what ought to drive us most in this life is Christ. And that's not to say, brothers and sisters, that you are to abandon your careers and join a monastery or get to the top of a mountain and wait for Jesus to come back. Rather, consider how you can do everything for the glory of God, for the honor of Christ in this life. How can you glorify God to the best of your ability as a student, as you work retail, as you work your office job, in your retirement, in your family life, in the way that you handle being around difficult people? The glory of God, the honor of Christ, the power of the gospel to save is everything to us. If Christ truly is gain, if knowing him truly has surpassing value over everything in life, how do we as believers demonstrate that reality in our lives? How does that show up in the way that you go about your day-to-day? 
Is it reflected in your attitude? Is it reflected in your approach to trials? Is it reflected in the way that you do the small things, the mundane? If all that is supposed to show how Christ is supremely valuable, how does that show up? Oh, brothers and sisters, you and I have so many aspects of our lives that continue to be in rebellion and dishonor to Christ. And while that can be discouraging, while that can be discouraging, take hope in the fact that your righteousness is God's gracious gift to you and that it cannot be taken away. We will continue to strive to conform every aspect of our lives to Christ in this life, but there will be a day when Christ will make all things right. But until that day, we must press on towards Christ's likeness. We must press on to show each other and the rest of the world that Christ has the power to change lives. And that leads us to the second drastic change the gospel has on our lives, which is that it is vision reshaping. It is vision reshaping. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Lest anyone say that Paul thinks that he has already been made perfect or is glorified now in this life, Paul qualifies what he means by acknowledging that he has not obtained the resurrection from the dead or has already become perfect. He knows that he still struggles with sin. And that what he longs for, what awaits him in, it awaits him in death or the second coming of Christ, whatever comes first. Yet he says that there is still work to do, and therefore he presses on. Specifically, he says that he presses on that he may lay hold of that for which he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, what is that? That's a bit of a mouthful. What has Paul been laid hold of for? What have Christians been saved for in general? It's for sanctification, for Christ's likeness. God saved us so that we can be like his son. Paul says that he currently, he presently presses on to lay hold of Christ's likeness. That means that this is the pattern of his life. This is the way that he goes about living his life. Paul actively and continually strives to become like Christ as much as he can in this life. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Paul reminds his readers that he does not consider that he has finally He has finally laid hold of Christ's likeness yet. He knows that he's not a finished product. Yet, he knows that he's not a finished product in spite of the fact that he has received Christ's righteousness. So so there is one thing that he does. He presses on towards Christ's likeness. Some may interpret verse 13 as Paul doing two actions. That he forgets what lies behind and he reaches forward to what lies ahead. Because those are the two verbs that you see before he says, I press on. However, the actions of forgetting and reaching forward are descriptions of the manner in which Paul presses on. 
They describe how Paul presses on towards Christ's likeness in a negative sense and in a positive sense. Negatively, when he says forgetting what lies behind, Paul is not advocating for believers to have to, to, to forget where they came from or to disregard their past. On the contrary, the sweetness of the Christian life comes from remembering where you were and how God saved you in spite of who you were, in spite of what you've done. God's grace is so much sweeter when you consider, when you remember how God saved you, not because of who you are and what you've accomplished, but because of his grace, because of his grace alone, because of his loving choice of you. And so when Paul talks about forgetting what lies behind, he's not telling us that we need to have spiritual amnesia of our past. But what he's saying is we are to, we are to have a refusal to allow the guilt of previous sins to tell us that we are worthless and that God cannot forgive us. Now, there is a little truth when doubt tells us that we are not good enough for God's grace, that we are wholly undeserving of salvation and that we are guilty. That is all true. You are not good enough for God's grace. You cannot earn your way to salvation. You don't deserve to be saved at all. You should feel guilty for your sins. But the beauty of the gospel is found in God's grace. Despite the fact that you are not good enough, despite the fact that you are undeserving, despite the fact that you are genuinely and truly guilty of every little, every little sin that you have done, despite all of that, when no one else could save you or would even take a look at you and consider to save you, God, at the right time, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you in your place because he loves you and he desires to save you from his wrath against all sin. At the right time, he did that because he loves you. That's the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. And as a result, you and I need not fear when, uh, when we doubt that we'll ever lose our salvation because if we have truly believed upon Jesus Christ and repented of our sin because God has declared, because God himself has declared us righteous, we have assurance of salvation because God himself has given you, has attributed to you as a free gift the righteousness of Christ when he gave you faith. You don't need to look anywhere else but to God for your justification. When you are tempted to doubt, you and I can, like Paul, forget what was once ours and move forward because of Christ, because he took it all upon himself and he gave us his righteousness. That's why you and I can have assurance of salvation. And that brings us to how Paul defines pressing onward positively, and that is reaching forward to what lies ahead when Paul says that he reaches forward to what lies ahead, that should get you to wonder what he is reaching forward for. What drives him? What pushes Paul? It's the same thing that pushed him forward in his evangelism. What awaits him in heaven? Christ in his glory. If all that Paul had to look forward to in heaven was floating around aimlessly in the clouds and playing a harp like the cartoons tell us, 
I'm pretty sure that when he was stoned and left for dead, that he wouldn't get up and go proclaim the gospel, because why would he? That's not a very motivating factor. And, you know, I'll be honest, that doesn't excite me either. And I like music, and it might be cool to float around for a little bit, but after a while, that's just boring. That's just boring. That's not appealing whatsoever. What is appealing, though, is being in heaven with God. Being in heaven with God is the most appealing thing ever. John Piper asks in, his, in, in one of his books, God is the Gospel, he asks, if you could have heaven with all of your family, everything that you value, no more pain, no more tears, you could have all of that, but God is not there, would you be satisfied with heaven? I wouldn't be. Because if I could have everything, but God's not there, heaven is empty. Heaven is empty. Consider with me for a moment Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. The Apostle John, he writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of, the, out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell, another word for that is tabernacle, among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? All of our lives, we have lived separate from God, separated from God, apart from Him. Because of our sin, we have been kept away from Him for our good and our protection. But finally, in that day, when we get to be with Christ, in heaven, in God's kingdom, he will dwell among us and we will be able to have fellowship with him. We'll be able to go about doing the work of our master on the new earth and we will be satisfied because our souls will finally be filled and satisfied with what God made us to be satisfied with. Himself. God didn't mean for you to be satisfied with the things of this life. He created each and every one of you to be satisfied with one thing and one thing only. Himself. And so, in that day, when we get to go to heaven, when we see Christ face to face, oh, what a joy that will be. Oh, what a joy that will be because we get 
what our souls have always longed for. We get Christ. That's what lies ahead. This is what Paul is reaching towards for. He is reaching forward to the hope of seeing Christ and getting all of Christ. That's what motivates him. That's what pushes him forward. That's why he gets up and he says, even if you try to kill me, Christ is my life. And I will continue to proclaim the gospel to whoever will listen. This is the motivating factor of the gospel. This is the thing that changes our vision. It's the thing that changes our motivation. Christ in his glory. And so forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, this is how Paul presses on. Notice again the continual nature of that present tense verb. He continually presses on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, day by day, moment by moment, strives to press on towards what lies ahead. And this kind of passion, this life objective is vision reshaping. Not only has the gospel come in and reprioritized all of our values so that Christ is everything to us, but it changes our outlook. It changes our vision of how, on, on how life ought to be lived as we consider how those values need to be pursued in this life. If knowing Christ is everything to a believer, if it has value that surpasses all other objects of value, how can we press on towards the upward call of God in Christ? How can we press on towards heaven, towards being like Christ? We must stop pretending that just saying the sinner's prayer and then living our lives however we want is, an, is salvation. We must stop pretending that a mere intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is a real person is enough. We must instead strive to allow for the gospel to permeate every single aspect of our lives so that what we long for most in this life is not success, it's not fame, it's not just mere happiness, but it is only Christ. The Christian life goes beyond just showing up to church and serving because the gospel is not about behavior modification. The gospel is not about you just showing up to church so that you can fill yourself up with positive thoughts, so that you can endure the hardships of the week, and then when you run out of positive thoughts, you have to come back to get a recharge. The gospel is all about Jesus Christ dying on the cross in your place, rising from the dead to guarantee your salvation so that you can be freed from your slavery to your sin to become a slave to the most glorious, most loving master who rescued you from his wrath against you so that you can draw near to him with Christ's righteousness and so that you can enjoy God forevermore. We long 
for Christ-likeness. We long for righteousness in this life, not because we want to be morally superior to our co-workers or to our friends. It's not because we want to be goody-two-shoes. We long for righteousness in this life because it brings us ever nearer to being with our God. It brings us inch by inch, moment by moment, closer to Christ-likeness. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we must strive to lay aside every sin, every encumbrance, so that we can get more of Christ. Because nothing else, nothing else in this life measures up in value. And so when we talk about our outlook on life, our view of life, we strive with all of our being to be like Christ, to strive for that glorification because the only treasure worth living for lies ahead in heaven in Christ. Yes, life can be difficult. And there will be pain. There will be suffering. There will be loss that brings us to our knees and causes us to cry out in anguish. But despite the pain, despite the loss, what allows for us to get back up and to continue to live and strive for Christ is not our own determination. It's not our own power, but it is the trust that God is actually doing something and that he will make everything right in the end. Though the sting of pain and loss may not necessarily be taken completely away, the hope of heaven, the hope of being with Christ, help us weather the storm when we hurt. It helps us look at, it helps us take a look at what is unfolding before us through God's perspective rather through, than, than through our own perspective. And when we fight, when we claw to have God's perspective rather than our own, it makes everything different. As many of you know, my family has been shocked recently by my uncle being called home to be with the Lord. While we certainly miss him, we know that he is home with his Heavenly Father. And that he is rejoicing in the presence of God. It was really difficult to get through a lot of the pain, a lot of the questions, and a lot of the hurt that was there. In losing a loved one, the sorrow that comes from losing a loved one. It was really difficult at first. And even though I don't fully understand it, as I, become, as I became more aware of all the lives that my uncle touched through his volunteer work at Red Cross and through the community work that he did in Chinatown, I began to see how God, I began to understand how God can use my uncle's memorial service to be a unique gospel witness people who would probably never walk into a church on their own free will. With all of his volunteering, my uncle has had influence on the lives of a lot of people who do a lot of good things. And most of them probably feel like they don't need God because, hey, I give back to the community. I help out with disaster relief. I help people prepare for the worst. But despite their good deeds, we know that what they need most desperately is the gospel. That's what they need to hear. And because my uncle is home with the Lord, 
even though it's difficult for me and my family, I know from God's perspective, there is a purpose to this. That there is good that comes from this because there will be many who hear the gospel on the day that that service will be held who desperately need it. And if it were not for my uncle going home to be with the Lord, these people might not hear it. And so even though it is difficult, even though it can be very difficult, we have to take a step back when we hurt. We don't know what God is doing. And we have to strive to see things from his perspective, not from our perspective. Because even if we cannot trace his hand, even if we cannot see how he is exactly working, knowing that God is in control and that he is doing something, is helpful, it's comforting. Especially when we struggle to deal with what are at times bitter blows to our souls. So when we consider this treasure that lies ahead and how the gospel reshapes our vision and reshapes the way that we look at things, gives us gospel-colored lenses to look at the world through, verses 15 to 16 can help us see the natural consequence of striving towards Christ-likeness in this life and how that should show up in our lives. Verse 15, it says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. When Paul says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, he's not saying that the ones who are to have the attitude he just described in terms of pressing on towards Christ's likeness are those who have achieved perfection in this life. That would be a contradiction of everything that he just wrote to the Philippians. Rather, what Paul is saying here, and, in, and some of your translations will have, instead of as many are perfect, as many as are, are mature, and that's the better understanding of it, that's the better translation of this. What Paul is saying is that those who are legally right before God, those who have placed their faith in Christ and have repented of their sins and are in the process of becoming mature, Their attitude, their desire should be that of becoming more like Christ in this life. Those who have experienced the life-changing effects of the gospel ought to want to become more like Christ now. Not later, not when it's convenient for you, but now. That should be valuable to them. That should be what drives us. And therefore, Paul says, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. If your desire is completely contrary to that of a mature believer, God will demonstrate through his word that this is not just Paul's preference, his opinion, or message. Or if you want to look at it this way, it's not my opinion or my message to you, but God's word, God's desire is for all of us to become like Christ. Because the scriptures evidence that as well. God wants for every single one of us to become as much like Christ as we can in this life. He wants for us to live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel. And as Paul says here, we are to keep living to the standard which we have attained. What have we attained? We have attained right legal standing before God. He has not declared us 
necessarily just innocent. He is declared as completely not guilty. I'm sorry, he is not declared as not guilty. He is declared as completely innocent. He has given us the complete righteousness of Christ. And if that is the standard that we have attained by grace through faith, then we are all without excuse when we fail to live rightly before God. Every single one of us must consider how we can grow more to be like Christ. How we can actively, while at the same time dependently upon God, strive to submit every area of our life to Christ. There are no secret bank accounts that we get to keep when it comes to how we live our lives before God. It's not like you can compartmentalize your life so that all that God sees of your life is what you want him to see. And then you can have, you can have hidden sins, a hidden life, away in the canes. You can see all things. You can see all things. Everything is laid bare before him. So we are to continually seek out how we can act like Christ, think like Christ, seek to honor Christ in all that we say, in all that we do, in our jobs, in our relationships, everything. Everything we do ought to honor God. It ought to be in view of striving to get Christ and to get as close to him as possible as we can in this life. And so when we see how the gospel begins to permeate every aspect of our life, the way that we look at life, the vision that we have for our lives shifts from being about our goals and our desires and becomes a new vision of how we can submit those goals and desires to Christ, use those goals and desires to honor Christ, to bring him great glory in everything that we do. While it certainly seems appealing and at times comforting to believe that as long as someone just says the sinner's prayer, and they're saved. Right? But what we see in the scriptures is that the gospel has an impact on our day-to-day lives. It's not just, oh, I prayed the prayer, I can live however I want. I'm saved. I prayed the prayer. The gospel has power to change our lives. It's not, a, it's not merely a theological, theoretical concept that we find in Scripture, but it is a reality that actively changes the lives of all who believe, even if it doesn't happen at the same rate for everyone. Right? The gospel, it comes in and it drastically changes our lives when it comes to our core values, when it comes to the vision that we have for life. Christ becomes the center of our lives and truly has unsurpassable value in the lives of believers because he truly is our highest good, our highest treasure. As a result, the way that we look at life following our conversion in view of the infinite worth of the treasure that awaits us in heaven in Christ, that is all completely reshaped. Life even the difficulties that we encounter must be reinterpreted through a gospel lens because we know what God is trying to help us, help us reach, help us attain. And so for those of you who are here this morning, you've placed your faith in Christ. Do you truly have a love for him that changes the way that you live life? 
in the way that you look at life. Because if you don't, you must ask yourself why it is that way. Are there any idols in your life that have taken the place of God in your heart so that going to heaven to be with Christ is not appealing outside of escaping hell? And if so, perhaps you need to reevaluate why you are a Christian. Now, if you do love Christ, consider how you might seek to follow after him and to become more like him in this life. Where are those rebel areas in your life? And how can you seek to conform those to Christ? Finally, for those of you who are here today and you know that you don't have saving faith in Jesus Christ, I've refrained from addressing you much in this morning's sermon, not because I don't care about you and don't want you to believe in Jesus, but because I want you to have a full understanding of what it means to live the Christian life, of what drives a Christian. The Christian life is not about following a bunch of rules so that we can be morally superior to other people. It's not about showing up to church and doing good deeds. You can do all the good deeds you want, and you still won't earn your way to heaven. It's about knowing and loving Christ. Not just up here in your brain, in your mind, but in your heart, in your life. It's evidenced through that. Yes, Christians don't act perfectly. We are hypocrites. But the good news for every single person is that because God loved us, despite who we were, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place so that we might be forgiven of our sins if we believe and turn away from our sins. And so as a result, even if we do not follow Christ perfectly in this life, there is hope of forgiveness of sins because God himself is the one who promises to save us from our sins if we believe in him and love him. Now you might say, why would I want to do that? Right? Because if I, if, I choose, if I choose to follow Christ and don't do it, I'm a hypocrite. So why would I want to be a hypocrite? I might as well just continue to live my life the way that I, I want to live it. Let me tell you something. If you continue to live your life the way that you know, or that, that you want to, and you know what the truth is, you are a hypocrite. You don't avoid being a hypocrite by just, by just not living the Christian life. If you know what the truth is and you refuse to live in light of it, you are a hypocrite. Don't pretend like you're any better than we are just because you don't follow Christ. You are a hypocrite. But, oh hypocrite, there is hope for you. God does love you. He is willing to forgive you and he's willing to forgive you this day. He loves you very much. He sent his son for you for that purpose. Will you repent of your sins and believe in him this day? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Christ. We're grateful for this gospel that comes in and changes everything in our lives. It gives us, as a free gift, your righteousness. So that we can 
respond in joy and in thanks to you for everything that we have so that we don't have to say, well, God, I did my very best. Will you let me in? Rather, we can say, Lord, I was guilty. But because you saved me, because I have Christ's righteousness, because you've forgiven me, oh, Lord, please let me in. And we will have absolute certainty that we will be with you in that day. Father, we pray that as we examine our lives, as we consider the ways that we don't value Christ, the times when other things have greater value than Christ, we pray that, Lord, you would reveal these things to us and help us to consider how we can apply the gospel to these values so that these things that we might value will value them rightly. We'll value them in light of the gospel, in light of Christ, and that we'll do them, we'll pursue them so that we can seek how we can honor you. Father, we pray for those who are believers here that you would grant us greater love for you, a greater passion for you. That going to heaven to be with Christ is our motivating factor, is our motivating driver in our lives, so that all we want is Christ. For those who are not saved this day, we pray, Lord, that you would impress upon them how much you love them, how desperately they need you, because your wrath is against all unrighteousness, it's against all sin. And you, having to be a just God, will have to deal with all sin. And yet, you are patient. And so we pray that, Lord, while there is still time, while you are still willing to be patient, that you would soften hearts. And that you would help them see the surpassing value of Christ. That they might desire to come to know you. And actually come to know you. Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray that you would honor yourself as we sing this closing song. In your sons, and we pray. Amen.